Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Okay, we're in 1 Samuel 28 tonight. This is our second to last Samuel night. We're going to finish Samuel next week. Um, so here we are in and we are out of Samuel. Um, where we're picking up in chapter 28, if you remember from last week, David is living in sin. He's hanging out with the Philistines. It's not a good season in David's life. He writes no psalms while he's in this period of his life. So the thing that he's been gifted with since he was a boy just kind of silences. Um, and the last chapter, 27, uh, David saved neither man nor woman alive to bring tidings to Gath, saying, lest they should tell on us, saying, so did David, and so will his manner all the while he dwelleth in the country of the Philistines. He's killing people. Uh, and he's not doing it at God's command. He's just out slaughtering people, and he's definitely not doing that. At the same token, we saw David, like God's, even in his sin, God's still using him. And he's still adding to David's numbers. And there is a, a kingdom forming without like an actual territory yet. So the, the resolution of 1 Samuel is David arriving as the king of Israel. And the, the, the ministry of Samuel ends as David lands himself on the throne. So how we're going to get there in three chapters seems pretty far off when you get to chapter 28. He's not in a good place, and he's not doing good works. So then we hit chapter 28, verse 1. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you, that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. So David said to Achish, Surely you know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Notice how David's sin, it was where David thought he was in control of it, but now his sin is controlling him. At some point, as you see this backsliding happening, uh, what he thought was really shrewd, where he's attacking Israel's enemies, but lying to Achish about what he's doing, well, now he's in a situation where Achish is going to go fight Israel, and he wants David right there. And at this point, there's no indication that David resists this. Maybe he's still lying to Achish. We don't know. The impression you get is that he's still convincing himself that he's, he's maybe doing God's work, um, but he's openly now going to be serving the Philistines. He says, surely you know, as though he's going to learn, like, this is a chance for David to prove himself to Achish. Um, Achish then makes a promise, you'll be one of my chief guardians forever. Um, he can't promise forever because he's a human. He's finite. Um, that said, David has lied about who he's been raiding, and now he's kind of stuck in his lies. So th this then, I, th I mean, you can almost put like a chapter break right here, because then it says, now Samuel died, and we start kind of a new narrative. In fact, I should have probably done verses 1 and 2 last week. Like that was the end of that situation. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city, and Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Those are two really weird sentences to have in the same verse, right? So the spiritual leader of Israel dies, and 
Saul has put mediums and spiritists out of the land because that's like biblical. He should have done that. So now there's basically nobody with spiritual authority left in the country. Or at least that's the position we find ourselves in. Samuel is, um, back in chapter 25, he was dying. And here we see him kind of, that context is brought back. So God's voice is just gone. And Samuel um, rightly gets rid of people that shouldn't be there. Leviticus 19.31 says, Give no regard to mediums or familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. The Bible never says that the occult is false. I always was fascinated by this. The Bible seems to give credence that the problem with the occult is it's actually real, right? And the reason you're not supposed to go to mediums and spiritists is because you get defiled by them, right? That's the Leviticus law here. Now, well, we'll keep, we'll get this situation, but, but Saul's going to experience the defilement of the occult. So welcome to Bible study. Like we're studying necromancy tonight and how that all works. Um, I was a little stunned at how different the, the commentaries were on this. I went to, I think, eight different commentaries on this chapter. And there's a really, there's a lot of different ways to read into exactly what happens here. And of course, uh, we'll go through it verse by verse. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together and they encamped at Gilboa. So what we should know about Shunem is that's by the Valley of Jezreel. It's in northern Israel. The Philistines, their major cities are back down in the Gaza Strip, the southwestern corner of Israel. What we should read in verse 4 is the Philistines have made a major incursion into Israel. Like they, In fact, this requires for this territory to be where they're standing off They've pretty much taken Israel. You take the Jezreel Valley, you own Israel. You can't go north-south, you can't go east-west. The Jezreel Valley, today we call it Megiddo, and it's also called Armageddon. Like This is a place that is the main thoroughfare of Israel if you're going to do trade. So the fact that they're up kind of all the way into the Galilee region of Israel, this is looking really dark for Israel. Point being, if the Philistines have gotten that far, Israel's in trouble like as a nation, as it, to be in, even in existence. And in the context of Saul having passed, they don't have any counsel either. So as David has gained a prophet, a priest, mighty warriors, commanders of arms, the Gadites, as he's gaining his mighty men, Saul just keeps losing people. And now he's lost any contact he has. So in verse 5, when Saul saw that the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. That's why he's afraid. It's a reasonable thing to be afraid when you're outnumbered, you're outgunned, and you've been losing all the way up to Galilee. He was afraid and his heart trembled greatly because the kingdom he was supposed to found is about to be eradicated. And there's no reason to believe the Philistines are going to lose. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. We know all three of these. I think that Urim were like, how does the Lord not answer you through the Urim? Like the priest's hand got stuck in, in the thing. It's like, oh, I'm stuck. I can't pull my hand out. Like all he's got to do is pull out a rock to get an answer. But the, seemingly the priest much, must have at some point said, I got no answer. Like I can't find the stones. I'm reaching in and there's nothing here. So the prophets, Gad went off with David. So there's no prophets. Samuel's dead. By dreams, we've seen the Lord communicate through dreams, like the story of Joseph. So we've seen the Lord talk to even Israel's enemies 
through these different channels, right? So Balaam was an enemy, was an enemy uh, religious leader, and he was able to communicate or hear from God. There's lots of ways in the Old Testament God's communicated with people. So basically this verse is like Saul's trying everything, and he's getting crickets in every different direction from the Lord. Okay, it, silence is a way for God to communicate too. You ever prayed and you just don't get an answer from the Lord? That's an answer. It either means wait or it means I'm not talking to you right now. You got to figure some stuff out before we're going to go forward with this other thing. Right? So this, this should have gotten Saul to react. If you're not hearing from the Lord and you're asking for that counsel and that guidance and you're not getting it through the scriptures, through the Holy Spirit, or through other believers in the church, it's time to repent. It's time to figure out where you're at with God. Get humble and bring yourself back to the Lord. So when it says the Lord did not answer him, theologically, that means there are times where God, he's going to talk to who God, God's God. He doesn't have to talk to people. If he chooses to be silent, it is his prerogative to do that. And I think as a prideful human, that's tough for me sometimes. It's like, well, isn't God obligated to answer my prayers? No, he's not. He's God. And sometimes he can just be quiet. Uh, and this isn't the only time. Matthew 21, 27. <laughs> I, again, I'm cross-referencing. So they answered Jesus and said, we don't know, the, the Pharisees. Isn't it interesting that the Philistines and the Pharisees, that both start with P, and they seem to be the chief enemy? On, anyways. They said, we don't know. And then Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Jesus just didn't answer them. And I think sometimes, especially when there's sin involved or rebellion involved, God's not obligated to talk to people. It's not that he doesn't hear people. It's that he chooses to not respond. He's, not, he's God, and he can make that decision. Point made. Saul then has been judged. He knew that from Samuel about 15 years before this. Um, and he's had a number of chances. He's had 15 years to repent. He never has. So God said everything he's needed to say to Saul for Saul to come back and to repent. Um, he's been warned by the prophet um, he's been told there's somebody else. He himself has confessed with his mouth that David is greater than he is and that he's the anointed. So Saul knows the situation, um, and God chooses to not answer him. So, and another thought is, like, like Saul, Saul ignores God's word, and then he thinks God's going to respond to him like a puppet. And the same thing's true today. If we ignore God's word and disregard it, why would we think God would suddenly be working with us in our lives? Like, that's just something to be, like, we need to recognize where we're at in position to God. And, and here's another note, like, this is an important piece of this. This is the context of the, the necromancy stuff. The context, and this is where we don't get confused. This is a super confusing chapter. If God's not talking, we should know that for the context of all of this. So as we go in here, people are like, well, is this God sending Samuel and like this spirit that's talking? No, we just got in verse 5 that God is not talking to Saul, right? right? So we are guarded against that right now. We know something. And so moving forward, it's not God talking through the rest of this chapter because the writer tells us that at the beginning. So then you get to verse 7, and this is where Saul, he's like the fig tree. He's not bearing any fruit in his life, and he's just going to get withered. And at the end of this chapter, as we see David rise, this is kind of the last we hear from Saul in this chapter. He has fallen throughout the book of Samuel. Then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who's a medium that I might go to her and inquire of her. 
And his servants said to him, in fact, there is a woman who's a medium at Endor. That's where the Ewoks live. So a lot of people call this person the witch of Endor. Um, and technically, she's a medium. She's not a witch. There's nowhere in the Bible that says she's a witch. In the Bible, it says she's a medium. So the, the, in fact, the, the, in the Hebrew for verse 7, the literal Hebrew translation is woman that has a familiar spirit at Endor. So she's possessed. Um, the word for, for the familiar spirit there is ob. It's a, uh, is that an onomatopoeia? Is that the right word? It's the word for mumbling. So she's a mumbler um, is the word for it. it it's, at times, historically, when people are demon-possessed, there's a depth or a, a vocal range in their voice that they start to hit. And so it's kind of a, an expression of that, an alliteration. I don't know the right word. I didn't listen in English class. She's demonically possessed, and she allows it, and she welcomes it, and she uses that connection to the spirit world to make money. Um, and and it's, it's, the weird thing is, if you're living in a country that's not submitted to the Lord God Almighty, which clearly pushes that stuff out of the way, you will see a resurgence of, of that kind of spiritism in a culture. To make the point, Pew uh, Research found that there are one in four adults in the United States of America that would call themselves atheists. One in four, 25%, right? A growing amount of atheism in our country. At the same time, you'd say, well, that must mean religion is dying. It's not. Some religions are increasing. In fact, in 2008 to 2015, we went from half a million Wiccans and Pagans in the United States to two million of them. That means they quadrupled in that amount of time. So in the same time that you see a rise in atheism, you also see a rise in the occult. And it's historically always been that way. Because when there isn't God, anything else comes rushing in. And if God isn't there to defend and protect, there are enemies in the spiritual world that will jump in and do that. So when God isn't talking, people turn to the occult. That's exactly what Saul does. Well, God's not talking to me, so I'm going to go anywhere I can go to get any sort of information from the spirit world that I can. So he goes down to the Witch of Endor, and she puts away her teddy bears, and she gets out her Ouija board, and he's going to listen to this garbage. And that's dangerous for God's people. Um, I didn't even get into, I started to do the research, and then I said, I won't geek out, but I at least want to share the research with you. I also looked into the rise in fascination with vampires, werewolves, druids, sorcery, and cosplay in the United States. You can do that research you want if you really want to dig into it. But like the Bible, it doesn't tell us anything about her methods. I'm not going to study evil that long. But in the United States of America, there's definitely a rise in those things in our country. We shouldn't be scared by that because it runs from the face of God Almighty. That stuff cowers in, faith, in the face of God. But when you got more and more people that aren't looking to God for their solutions, they start to look to things that are stupid like this. So verse 8. This is the thing. So, so Saul got into cosplay, dressed up as Harry Potter, and he put on other clothes. Now, I'll, I'll, the Bible actually says, so Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. Ooh. You know, it's like a Halloween party. And he said, conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. So Saul disguises himself. Why would he disguise himself? He knows this is wrong. That's why he's disguised himself. Um, Leviticus 20, verse 6, 
any person who turns to mediums or familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. So Saul's figuring, I'm already cut off. I might as well go do this anyway. So, but for God's people, like we just shouldn't mess with this stuff. But th- that's what we're doing tonight. Like Adam and Eve disguising themselves, Saul disguises himself. And the disguise comes because of shame. And this is kind of a, a tough situation. But basically, uh, this is not a passage we're going to make doctrine from. And that's a summary of a lot of commentaries, right? This is not where we build our, co- our doctrine. Is when we're dealing with Saul the liar and which of Endor the liar, those are not the people we're going to listen to for what the Bible says. Does that make sense? So you're going to see some verses in here that people use out of context, and lo and behold, it happens to be this chapter, where as a Bible scholar, now you know we're not going to do debates over chapter 28 of Samuel, 1 Samuel. We're just not going to go there. Then the woman said to him, I can't help it, the theater part of me goes, look, you know what Saul has done, but I, I'll, I won't do that. The woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done he ha- and how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a, lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? So she's careful because she's illegal. And as a good criminal, she's checking out who she's dealing with. You don't just deal drugs to anybody. You got to confirm the person you're, I mean, if you watch any cop shows at all, you know this. Like, you got to confirm who you're dealing with isn't going to bust you or, or turn you in. And that's what she's doing here. She's acting under the radar. And then in verse 10, Saul swore to her by the Lord. What? Why is he swearing by Yahweh? As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So remember he's in disguise. She doesn't know yet that he's Saul. She will here in a verse. Um, don't miss the fact that Saul, the king, is now answering to the witch in Endor, or the medium in Endor, right? Don't miss the fact that this is the king of Israel answering to her, and it just how low he's gotten. Saul, Saul swore to her by the Lord in verse 10. We just keep seeing this pattern with Saul. He just keeps speaking like he's a servant of God when he's just not. He does everything the opposite. Um, he, this is, by, by definition, he's using the Lord's name in vain. He's using the Lord's name, but it's empty. And, and in that, he's just making a mockery of God. Um, and this is the last time that he calls upon the Lord, and he's doing it to protect evil. Like, think about that. He's calling on God's name to protect a medium in Israel that should never be there in the first place. So this is just how messed up Saul is. And then the woman said, verse 11, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. It's like just putting it into a record machine. And when, the movie, and when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. Remember, Saul outlawed this, and she, now she sees through the disguise. It's interesting that as a medium, she's, some people say, okay, she's crying out because she's scared of Samuel. I, I don't see that here, it's, but I want to share it with you because I see it in the commentaries. She cries out because she realizes this is King Saul and I'm in trouble because he outlawed me. So she's not scared of the spirit. She's perfectly comfortable with the spirits. She's scared of the fact that there's a man who used to be righteous in the room with her. So he's got to convince her that he's not righteous anymore. So in verse 13, the king says to her, do not be afraid. What did you see? He's more interested in what, he, what she saw 
than in the person or in the situation. So now he uses it. And the woman said to Saul, I saw spirits ascending out of the earth. Your Bible might have added the, 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 um, the word a. Okay? In the Hebrew, that's just not there. The word is Elohim, which is a plural word for gods. So when God says, I am Elohim, he's using a plural word for himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When, when a spiritist says, I saw Elohim ascending out of the earth, she's saying she saw a lot of different people. Um, and so he said to her, what is his form? And when, even though she says a plural, Saul hears a singular. He hears what he wants to hear. She plays off of this. And this is, I think, I, I shouldn't say if you've ever gone into a spiritist. Um, like my knowledge of this really comes from movies and TV shows. And that's sad in itself. Um, but she's playing him, right? A, yeah, even a fake spiritist, they're reading you more than they're reading the spirit world. So when he says, well, what does he look like? She's going, oh, he's looking for a person, right? And so he's looking for Samuel. So she starts playing that. And she says, an old man is coming up, and he's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped down with his face to the ground and bowed down. In every situation where someone bows down in the Old Testament, and it's not God Almighty, they say, get up, don't worship me, worship God. Does this spirit ever do that? No. This spirit accepts the worship. That's a red flag right there. Now Samuel, now this is where people get screwed up because they're saying, well, the Bible says it was Samuel. I don't, I just, this is my perspective. It actually says, verse 14, Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And so moving forward, we're going to use that name for this spirit. So, and, and if you just want an example of this, like look around the room we have more than one mic in this room. There is mic and there is mic. And in other rooms, we even have more mics. So we have more mics than you can imagine in our network of friends. There are things with the same name that are not the same being, right? So just because we're going to call this thing Samuel from here forward, I would just be cautious about that, right? On the other hand, there's commentators that go, well, the Bible says it's Samuel. It must be Samuel. And so Again, we can talk afterwards, and I just want you to know there's a lot of controversy around this. I think the controversy comes because Satan's a great deceiver. I really do. And as believers and people studying the word, we know things like if, if it's truly a pure and godly thing, if this is an angel or if this is actual Samuel, they would absolutely reject getting worship because that's idol worship. So if this really was Samuel, he would say, get up off the ground, do not worship me ever. I'm not worthy of your worship. Only God gets that. So because we know that, we should be able to see through the lies really quick. But I also think it's really cool that the Old Testament gives us passages like this, where as a reader, we're supposed to see through the lies. We're supposed to understand these things. And she said, an old man's covered up with a mantle, and Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Remember, Paul's, or Saul's not seeing anything. He's just got this woman in front of him that's speaking with a weird voice, right? And now Samuel said to Saul, through this woman, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Clue number two, what direction did this being just come from? And in the Jewish tradition, what direction is down and what, what, what's, what's up and what's down? So notice directionally what's going on here. Saul ignores that. And Saul answered, I'm deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me. Ah, oh, Saul, who's the Philistines making war against? Are you a servant 
king or is it all about you? And God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore. True, he's not talking to you. Neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I've called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. Ah, oh, it's Saul. If God's not answering, why do you think this is Samuel? Like, honestly, why, God just changed his mind because you broke his law? That's your solution? So what should I do is the question. Let's remember that. What should I do? Should I fight and defend Israel? Here's the thing. He's already been told what to do. He's the king of Israel. He's supposed to fight. He's supposed to defend. He's supposed to stand for God's law and God's word. He's already been told what to do. And do the numbers, have the numbers ever mattered for Israel? No. So he's supposed to take courage and he's not supposed to fear. Moreover, he's supposed to repent and humble himself before an almighty God. He's been told what to do. So the fact that he still doesn't know says he's confused. I think humans are really good at self-deception, and Saul's a great example of that. We're really good at telling ourselves we matter more than we do and that there's things we don't need to take care of. Then you get to verse 16. Then Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? (laughs) And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. There, the Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. <laughs> so that's a lot to chew on, right? Quite a message he's getting from the spirit world. Um, this is a lesson in necromancy. Let's unpack this. Satan's super good because that kind of sounds like truth, right? Every single line has a lie in it. Every single one. And we got to be good about doing this. So first of all, why is Saul calling up Samuel? Does he not remember back in chapter 15 the terms they left on? Remember he ripped Samuel's cloak and Samuel turned around and said, you're going to get the kingdom torn away from you? Um, So At this point, uh, if this isn't Samuel, then now he's dabbling with his real enemy. Saul's never been his enemy. It's always been a spiritual battle with Saul. So the woman saw Samuel. This is likely a scam artist, but at this point, I think the Bible tells us something, that she is seeing something spiritual here. So some people are like, this is totally a, a scam artist. And everything that that just got said in verses 16 through 19 is common knowledge in Israel. Remember, Saul actually admitted and confessed that David was better than him in front of all of his soldiers. Like, it is common knowledge that David's the rising king, even though he's living with the Philistines. So if this is a real encounter or not, I'm going to treat this as a real encounter with a spirit of some sort. Um, So good, innocent people think just because this thing says it, it must be true. And that's awesome. We're good, innocent people. We don't expect people to lie. But the enemy lies, and lies really well. So as we dig into this, I don't want us to become shrewd to evil. I just want us to be wary of it, right? We don't need to be good liars. We need to recognize when a good lie just got told to us. So we'll unpack this, and it feels icky even talking about it to me because it's just evil. So lies are Satan's domain. They're his ballywig. They're his wheelhouse. This is where Satan lives. And a good liar, you don't know they're lying to you, right? Right? Good salespeople, you don't know they're giving you a line. You believe them. That's what makes it a good lie. So crafty lies come across as truth. They always do. But what they do is they weave in things and perspectives that will mess you up. 
So we're getting into Satan's territory. Um, it says, for your Saul, she recognizes it. What do you see? He asks her. And she says, I see a, an Elohim ascending out of the earth. I see gods coming out of the earth. And then he says, is, 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 it, is it Samuel? Is it an old man? And she quickly adjusts. She singles in and says, an old man. He's covered with a mantle. He's coming up. So directionally, he's coming up from the pit, so to speak. He's not wearing a mantle. They have a Hebrew word for wearing a mantle. He's covered with a mantle. And the word covered there in the Hebrew is atah. It means wrapped up. The only other places where we see the word covered or wrapped up like this, well, I'm sorry, not the only other places, but we see this used in the law. Lepers get wrapped up in Leviticus 13 to where you can't see them anymore. So they, they look like mummies. So they're wrapped up, same word. Uh, in Psalm 19, uh, evil people or people of reproach are wrapped up. It's same word. Uh, Psalm 89, they're wrapped up in their shame. Same word, reproach, shame, leprosy, evil. You wrap something so that it can't be seen. So what she sees is somebody coming up, walking forward, covered in their own mantle, wrapped up like Dracula. She can't quite see this person. The mantle there, mahil, is the same word that got used when Samuel's mom made him an ephod. Right? And then he grows up and he has a mantle that he wears. It's, so it's a, 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 a garment that looks like authority. So they look like they're in charge, but it's not an ephod, too. Does that make sense? Like it's something that looks like authority, but it's not necessarily authority. We don't know what it is. There's no mention of the torn robe. Because you'd think if it was Samuel, that robe would be torn. No mention of that. So there's spiritual discernment that comes in here. Saul perceives that it's Samuel. Perceptions can be misleading. We've seen that already in the Bible. Don't trust those perceptions. Go to the Word of God. He bows down. He, he offers that worship. She, the, the being takes it. Um, and then we see something. Look in verse 15. Huh. Actually, let's go to 16. Has become your enemy. Is God Saul's enemy? enemy or has God just removed himself from Saul so I think this is something the enemy does the enemy likes to paint God as our enemy and he likes to set a contest between us and God so that we become like him because Satan does think of God as his enemy right so this imposter is trying to build on this sense that Saul has that God's against him right verse 16 he's become your enemy this also cuts off hope if God's our redemption and our salvation, why would you repent and humble yourself to your enemy? You're just putting your neck out there. So if he can frame God as an enemy, it, it, it really cuts off Saul's chance to repent. Right? Here's the other thing. God says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, Genesis 15.1. God always says, I'm your refuge. I'm your shield. I'm where you come for hope. You feeling down, feeling anxious, feeling upset, feeling blue, feeling like there's no way out, that you're in a maze and you can't see the exit, turn to God. Look up. Don't look at the maze. Right? And God has always consistently said that, but this spirit says God's your enemy. And he frames it that way. It says in verse 17, the Lord has done for himself. Wait a sec. When God acts, is he doing it because he needs? Like he, he's doing it for himself? This is a picture of a selfish God. It's not the picture we've seen in Genesis through 1 Samuel. 
He's twisting it just a little bit. God does things for himself. So there's no memory of what God has done for Saul. Like he was a donkey chaser when we met him. God has done everything for Saul. He's put Saul in that position. It's always been God doing things for Saul. But this spirit says the Lord just did it for himself. He's a selfish God. And then in verse 17, here's another one. He says, another one's going to replace you, your neighbor, and it names David. Do you see that? That's twisting the word too. I'm going to go back to 1 Samuel 15, verse 28. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn your kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Samuel never named David. Why didn't he do that? Because if you name David, it creates an enemy for Saul. God would never do that. If we talk about people, we don't name people when we're in the negative because we're just coaching people to pick an enemy when we do that. So when this spirit does that, they just drop in David. They just drop in a name, confirming the fears and misconceptions that Saul has had his whole life about David, right? So again, just these little things in every line that are misperceptions and misconceptions about God. And this is why we don't deal with mediums and spirits. We're not clever enough. I mean, I got, I'm sitting here going through it with a fine-tooth comb. This is happening in real speed. Those lies just come in quicker than we can absorb them, right? I'm lucky we got the text right now. Verse 18, fierce wrath. That's another twisted one. We do not see God's fierce wrath. There's only been two other references to God's wrath with the adjective fierce in front of it. One is when Moses was upset and he was struggling with things and he said, God, why do you have such fierce wrath? But when Moses said that, he was mistaken in his theology. It's not fierce wrath. It's mighty wrath. It's powerful wrath. It's just and good wrath. It's appropriate wrath, but it's never fierce. God doesn't act out of anger, right? Do you see how he's twisting the words there? These aren't God's words because God would never say that about himself. Or his prophet Samuel would never say that about him. Verse 18, the Lord has done this thing to you. Wait a second. The question is, what should I do? Not only is this not answering the question, it's, accus it's accusative. It's accusing God of actively trying to harass Saul. That's not the situation. The context is God's simply not talking to Saul. That's not abuse. That's just keeping your distance from a really messed up guy. But this spirit says God has done this thing to you. So, you know, here's what God actually says, 1 Samuel 15, 11, I greatly regret that I've set up Saul as king, for he's turned his back from following me. Saul has done it to God, not the other way around. And he's not performed my commandments, and it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel has, knows this, so if this is the spirit of Samuel, Samuel knows darn well that God is, feels sorry for Saul. He's not actually actively trying to harass Saul. Moreover, the Lord will, verse 19. This is confusing too because does Satan know the future? So if God's omnipotent, is, is Satan omnipotent too? Does he know everything? Here's the deal. You got a massive, huge Philistine army and then you got the little teeny Israeli army. Like it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's going to happen. So if the medium knows, or this demonic spirit of Samuel knows, that they're outnumbered, and then take away all hope. Just make it so there's no light at the end of the tunnel. When God rebukes, 
at every instance we've seen so far, when God rebukes someone, he gives them a hope and a path to redemption. You're going this way and here's the destruction that's coming, or you could go this way and here's the blessing that's coming. So we've always seen God give a light at the end of the tunnel. 2 Chronicles 7.14 re reflects this idea. If my people who are called on my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That's God's words. That's God's promise. It's not, moreover, the Lord's going to wipe you out. That's not God, right? So we need to know the character of God in order to hear the truth of God and recognize lies about God, right? But there's, this is not the God we read about. And then it says, you and your sons will be with me. Okay, that's a, is that a slip? I mean, these things come so quick. Is Saul then going to heaven with Samuel at the end of this? Is that the path Saul's on right now? When it says your sons, that doesn't necessarily name Jonathan, but Saul's got other sons that maybe aren't going to heaven with him. So, and the other thing is this spirit came up. So when he goes back to where he was and they're going to be with him, so that, does that mean Saul's then going to go to hell with the demon or he's going to heaven with Samuel? You see how this is getting twisted really quick? And this is where people get messed up. Like, well, this must be Samuel. Like, but no, Saul's not on his path to heaven here. That's the truth of the matter. Demons aren't stupid, Right? They twist God's words subtly so that they're easy to believe. Saul would love to hear that he's going to heaven, but it doesn't say he's going to heaven. The words they use is that you're going to be with me. So uh, Satan just tries to minimize hell, tries to minimize that other alternative. Don't think about the afterlife. It's all going to be fine. You'll be with me, right? And it's just one of those things. So... And again, people, and he doesn't say Jonathan and you are going to be with me. He says your sons and, are, and you are going to be with me. So I think that's really interesting because the son of Saul that we've read about so far, Jonathan is saint-like. He's done nothing wrong. So as far as the biblical account, um, I think the demon has to says it, say it this way because Jonathan's likely on his way to heaven. So it also says the Lord will deliver the army, like not just you, Saul, but the whole army of Israel is going to die. If the army of Israel dies, the nation is dead. So he's basically saying this dream that was Israel, it's over. It's done. You see how demons take away hope? It's all over with. Which made me think of Denethor, steward of Gondor. He has this moment. He's a deceived guy. And this is something, again, I'm sorry for the people that don't know Lord of the Rings, but this is the voice of despair coming out of Denethor, right? This character in, in Tolkien's book. Better to burn sooner than late, for burn we must. Go back to your bonfires and I, I will go now to my pyre. My, to my pyre, no tomb for Denethor and Faramore, no tomb, no long, slow sleep of death embalmed. We will burn like the heathen kings before the ship sailed hither to the west. The west has failed. Go back and burn. That's despair. That's what Satan wants. He doesn't want to just beat people. He wants to wreck them. He wants to take you from having a bummer of a day to having a bummer of a life to being absolutely eradicated spiritually, right? It's not about just getting you to dead. It's about destroying you on the path there, right? And there's so many people that find this. Dabbling with the enemy ends up like this. So <laughs> this is not the steward of Gondor talking, and this is not Saul talking. This is the enemy 
wrecking a person that God had once anointed king. And Satan takes great delight in doing this. So I would say this isn't so much foretelling the future as a demon spewing hopelessness because it's not true. The army of Israel does not die. This is not the end of the West. This is not the hope of Israel dying, right? So there's a lie worked into this. If this is really Samuel, you got a Samuel that's lying, like he went bad since he died, right? This is not Samuel, folks. I just can't read it that way. And I, again, I was shocked at how many people, people I really respect that just read through this and they're like, oh, Samuel talked to Saul. But I, I think they need to slow down and, and really take a look at this. This is the voice of despair and ruin. And here's another cue when you're dealing with the enemy. What's the outcome of it? When we talk to God, it's encouragement. Like we see God's people when God speaks to him and interacts with him or, or one of his angels does or even one of his dead prophets does. The, the end result is encouragement and a champion of God's kingdom, right? Gideon goes from being a coward in the wine press to leading the armies of God. That's the outcome of God talking. The outcome of the enemy talking is absolute spiritual devastation. Stop listening to that voice. The, so ultimately, this encounter only discourages Saul. It, it's sad. When you do see, so here's the other thing. Well, you know, when Jesus was transfigured, Elijah and Moses showed up with him. So clearly some of his saints come back and talk to people from the dead. The problem is the transfiguration energized the disciples to go out and teach the gospel to the world. Like there was a clear effect of positive stuff that came out of that interaction. So that's not what happens here. Um, likely when the outcome is to accuse somebody, then the outcome is groveling. So that's what we go. Further, here's another point about this. We've learned nothing new from this entire interaction. There's no new insight here. So this is not Samuel the prophet. Everything that's been said has already been said. Um, so why put the story in here? Why even include this in the Bible? Right? This is a really sad kind of story, right? It's kind of a downer night tonight. Why even put this here? And I, I think it actually fulfills a prophecy that Samuel, the real Samuel actually gave to Saul. Back in 1 Samuel 15, 23, he says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as an iniquity and idolatry, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you from being king. This is the, so Samuel says before Saul messes with witchcraft, that there's a sin of witchcraft in his life. So by putting this story in here, it fulfills every word that Samuel has said. It concludes it. And that's what we're going to see. So verse 20, here's the conclusion. Immediately, Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of, quote-unquote, Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he'd eaten no food all day and all night. That is not the reaction to God's angels or God's spirit or God's servants. We encourage, we edify, we build, we construct. This is the, this is the impact of the enemy. This is what the enemy does. So generally, this is kind of that outcome. God says, don't be afraid. The direct result, the immediate result, is that he's dreadfully afraid. Those that expect any good counselor comfort otherwise, other than that from God, and in this way, in the way of his institutions, is going to be wretchedly disappointed like Saul is here. That's Matthew Henry. Anybody who goes to other places for advice, for counsel, other than God's institution, God's people, and God's word, you're in for trouble. There is no strength in him. 
Saul's beyond depressed. Like he's at the point where there's just nothing left. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled. And she said to him, look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice. I've put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed the voice of your maidservant. Let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you might have strength when you go on your way. He's got a medium recognizing that he's a mess. You know, and, and it's just, this is how low Saul's gotten. So she came to him. And now he needs her comfort. Yuck. That's, this is just disgusting. Um, the Holy Spirit is gentle. It never forces itself. It's sweet. And then you got these demons that start super sweet and then they dominate and destroy. Right? And it's just the opposite. The Holy Spirit convicts us and then we get a whole lifetime of just being encouraged and built up by it. Right? The hardest, time, the hardest interaction with the Holy Spirit is when he's convicting us of our sin. It's the opposite with demons. The hardest interaction with demons is the last one. In the first ones, you barely even notice. It's all sweet and gentle and fun and no big deal. And then all of a sudden you realize you're in a mess because you've been listening to the wrong counsel. So he refused and said he would not eat, verse 23. So even in this company, he's like, I don't want your... She's putting in you know, bat's eyes and frog legs and here, I'm going to make you some soup. And he's like, I don't want to eat your stuff. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Ephesians 6. What's food when your soul's a mess? What's life when nothing looks good anymore? So his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he heeded their voice. And then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. And now the woman had had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it doesn't say she cooked the meat. So she brought it before Saul and his servants and they ate. So he can't even resolve himself to not eat. Like look at how, he's just flippy floppy. And then they arose and went away that night. You get the sense that the servants are kind of at their wits end with Saul. Like they're loyal to him because he's the king, but oh my goodness, this guy's a mess. Um, When we first met Saul, because we're kind of wrapping up, this is the last we're going to hear Saul until he dies. 1 Samuel chapter 9, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man, and a goodly that there was and a, and a goodly, and there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he, from his shoulders and upward, higher than any of the people. He was a big guy, he's a wonderful guy. When we met him as a young man, he was awesome. Right? 1 Samuel 10, verse 10. And when they came Thither on the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. Saul was singing and laughing and happy, and the joy of the Lord was in his heart. This is where we met Saul, and now we see him laying on the ground, refusing food, now eating non-kosher food. You know, he's eating his newt of ingots or whatever. Um, Just, we liked, when we first met Saul, he was a great guy. And this is what the enemy likes to do over time. And the enemy plays the long game. Just wreck him one lie at a time, one deception at a time, one prideful, stubborn moment at a time. And Samuel predicted all of it because God told him it would happen. So when God's moving his blessing off of disobedient servants and he's building a new kingdom with these new servants, we see this pattern happen. The old system withers and dies. It doesn't get destroyed. So when Jesus sees a fig tree and the way back into the temple, Jesus doesn't conquer or kill the old priesthood. He just says, wither and go away. 
and he builds a new church that arises out of it. So he found nothing thereon but leaves, and he said to it, Let no fruit grow on the tree henceforward forever, and, present, and presently the fig tree withered away. That's what happened to Saul. He disobeyed God enough times, and God just said, I'm done with you. And then he's left to whatever spirits are going to come and, and destroy him. So while David is living in sin deceived at the beginning of the chapter, Saul is living in sin deceived. So then you get the question, why is God with David and he's not with Saul anymore? And that's a tough question. Like, you got an answer for that? I don't know. But both Saul and David in this chapter are living in deception. One of them's going to get out of it and be redeemed and humble himself and repent. And one of them, even in this moment, instead of laying on the ground and pretending not to eat and then eating anyways, like Saul could have still repented right here. He could have gone back to his army and he said, everybody put your swords down. We're going to pray and we're going to honor the Lord God Almighty because we're outnumbered, we're beaten, but God has gotten us out of this situation before. Saul could go back and do all that, but he doesn't. He's utterly hopeless. So first, God's got to deal with David's deception. So in 1 Samuel 29, we flip back over to the David story. Then the Philistines gathered together all the armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel, up by Galilee. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. They're vastly outnumbered. And David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. And then the princes of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? <laughs> this is great. Like David's, they're doing this parade past the king. And then the leaders of all the Philistine tribes are kind of watching this parade. And then up come the Hebrews, right? And they're just kind of waving like, hello, chaps, how are you doing? And they're going, that's David. What's he doing in our army? So I love this. You know, what's going on? We got your back. Don't worry when you charge into battle. We Hebrews, we got the back guard here. We got you. Trust us. And that's the, the Philistines that are gathering here. Um, says they're getting ready to end Israel. This is the end of Israel. They're getting ready to just wipe the Israelites off the earth. Um, and then they got David with them. So David finds himself in this position to attack Israel. He's never attacked Israel. In fact, he almost did back in chapter 25. But remember, God brought Abigail, and Abigail like stopped it from happening. So at this point, David's never really attacked and killed Israelites. But here he is ready to do it, backslidden, deceived, ready to just go ahead and attack God's people because God's people didn't want him anyways. So he might as well pledge allegiance to Achish and serve Achish. And he's kind of just lost in that, but God's going to step in again and change the situation so David doesn't do it. Um, so the what are these Hebrews doing here? Even if David thinks he's a Philistine, he's not, right? When you first got saved, did you struggle with this where you kind of got one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom? And you find out that like you got too much of God in you to be comfortable in the world and you got too much of sin in you to be comfortable with God's people. And that's the worst place to be. Like pick a side, you know, and, and it's just one of those tough things. So David thinks he's a Philistine, but he, he, he's just not. And the Philistines don't accept him. They see right through it. They can sniff it out. And they're thinking the first chance this guy gets, he's just going to attack us from behind. He can't be on the battlefield. Not only that, they're terrified of David. He took out Goliath. He took out Philistines. He's, he, and, he is a history of being a master strategist, and he's been called crafty and wise. Like, he's clever, and getting the rear guard is a really great move if you think about it. So the Philistine generals are kind of showing more wisdom than Saul did. Like, we don't want to go into battle with our enemy at our back. 
And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, isn't this David, the servant of Saul, king of the Israel? He's been with me these days or these years. It's kind of a way of saying he's been with me for a long time. And to this day, I've found no fault in him since he's defected to me. If you remember, the reason Achish hasn't found fault in David is David's been lying through his teeth to him. Oh, yeah, I'm attacking the Israelites, and he's coming back with loot from battle, but he's actually attacking all the other Canaanite tribes in the area. So David's walk doesn't make him stand out. Achish believes he's one of them. God's enemy is okay with him because he's backslidden. You want to get along with the world more? Stop talking about Jesus. Like, shut up your Jesus stuff, and the world will be really cool with you. You know, you're a really nice person. We like having you around. You're great. Just don't talk about Jesus. So in the last chapter, he's ready to fight Saul, um, but he doesn't fit in there with God's people. So he goes to hang out with the enemy. And here's the other thing, and we hear this a lot. If people don't feel like they fit in with God's people, the solution is to not to not hang out with them. The solution is to work it out, Right? And that's, for David, like, we see this a lot of times. People are like, I just don't get along with anybody in the church. Well, figure out how to get along with people. The solution isn't to go hang out with the enemy. It really isn't. It might be to pick a different church, but the solution is not to not hang out with God's people. So that's David's thing right now. Verse 4, but the princes of the Philistines were angry with him, Achish. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow return. The word fellow is not a nice term, as you see it throughout the Bible. This fellow, this guy that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him, and don't, which is Ziklag. Remember, David got his own town. And don't let him go down to us with battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. He's going to flip sides. For with what could, could he reconcile himself to his master with, if not with the heads of these men? If Saul had any instinct to go back to Saul, this is his opportunity. Achish, don't give him the opportunity. Don't let him be in that position. So basically, they don't trust David, and they are right to not trust David. Is this not David of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul is slain as thousands, and David's... Again, that must have been a catchy song, because even the Philistines know the song, and David is tens of thousands. We're going to hear it in heaven. We'll get to heaven, and they'll be singing this particular song. Well, oh, that is catchy, and we'll start singing it. It'll be the song that gets stuck in your head for like a thousand years of your eternity. So the Philistines are still singing this song. They know the song. I wonder if when they're saying this, because David would be there, right? These are all the heads and tribal leaders. David's one of them. So he's likely hearing this conversation, which is how it got into the book of Samuel. So when they say that, I wonder what went through David's heart. Did it awaken something in David to hear that song once again? The songs that have been silent in his heart for over a year? to hear that song come up. Remember, David, when you used to be close to the Lord? Remember when you were one of God's people doing God's work and that joy was in your heart? And it doesn't say David's reaction, so we don't, won't go too far into that. But I just like that thought of like, maybe David is like, well, yeah, I remember that song. Like he's coming out of his cloud. And then Achish called David and said to him, surely as the Lord lives, okay, let's just honor the fact that Achish is actually honoring Yahweh there. Like, I, just, I think that's great. David, even in his lies and whatever, has taught Achish about Yahweh. Like, don't miss that, right? And David is a fairly good, honorable person, has earned the respect and the regard of Achish. So surely as the Lord lives, as Yahweh, Jehovah lives, you've been upright and you're going out and you're coming in with me and the army is good in my sight. He's never actually attacked one of Achish's 
people, right? For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore, return now, go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. I don't have an issue with you, David. Just go in peace. Sorry this isn't your battle. Therefore, return now, go in peace. You would think that if David were in a better place, he would just say, praise the Lord, I got out of that one. Right? But that's not his response. It's interesting, his response, because he's getting, God's given him a way out to not have to kill Israelites, what used to be in David's heart. So we know he's backslidden because of how he responds. And here's the thing. His response won't matter because I think God's taking him out of this situation, and he's working through the Philistines to do that. As he's done in the past, he can work through Gentiles if he wants to. Verse 8, so David said to Achish, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I've been with you that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? It, it, it almost hurts to hear David say that. Like he's honoring Achish as his lord, as his king. Because Saul rejected him. And so Saul's not his king anymore. This Achish guy is. So Saul, David assumes that it's something he's done. And Christians, it's not something you've done. It's something you are. And I think that, for me, that's encouraging. When you have people in your life that reject the fact that you're joyful about the kingdom, you're joyful about God's people, you love Bible study. Think about it. Before you were saved, if you were like, I love studying the Bible, you would have thought you were nuts, <laughs> right? That's truly something that's changed in your heart. So when you meet people that think you're nuts, it's not what you've done. It's who you are. You're changing. You're a different person. So there's this genuine disappointment in David because he's worried about the opinion of men and not God Almighty. He's worried about what people think about him. So he's backslidden too. Um, once you lie enough, and there's great research on this, when you lie about something enough times, your brain chemistry actually changes. People can fabricate memories that never happened, but in their brain they convince themselves that something happened, something was said. You know, you replay that situation enough times in your head and you change some words. It's amazing how the brain can do this. David's been lying to Achish for over a year and he's actually believing the lies. He's convinced himself. Ephesians 5.26, that God might sanctify and cleanse the church with the washing of the water by the word. The solution to lies is truth. And as we come into the church, we, one lie at a time, when we study the word, God just takes it off. So if any of you have been going out to see palm readers, like last chapter, like hopefully we're starting to unravel some of that for you. Um, our brains actually adjust to truth and righteousness just like they can adjust the lies. It is a transforming of the brain. Ravi Zacharias says, sin takes you farther than you want to go and keeps you longer than you want to stay at a cost of more than you ever wanted to pay. Not only does sin have consequences, but each time we sin, we reinforce a pattern it becomes harder and harder to break. That's where David is. Then, verse 9, Achish answered and said to David, I know that you're good and in my sight as an angel of God. David, I think you're awesome. What a great thing to hear. David has earned the regard of the people he's under, even in the world. And we too are supposed to live at peace as much as we can with the world. It's not our job to make enemies. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to battle. Now therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants and all those that have come with you. And as soon as you're up and early in the moving, 
uh, in the morning, have a have light depart. Have a light heart. Just relax, take it easy. If you sneak out in the morning, nobody will know that you're gone. Right? You save your face, save your honor, but you're not going to battle with us. You're innocent, but you got to go. So the Bible elevates in this in these two chapters. The only people that are making the right decisions are the Philistines. Like, do you see how this is just flipped around? Instead of God's people standing for what's right and true, God actually works through the Philistines here. He's got a plan for David, and this would really mess up that plan for David. So he doesn't let David go there. I think sometimes with God's people, sometimes God steps in and he doesn't allow our sin to get worse than it was. Right? God doesn't like come in and force us to not sin, but sometimes God will save his people from things that will really mess up God's plan for their life. Praise the Lord for that. So David sent his men and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So the battle is set. So David, David leaves out of this next scene and God is going to remove Saul finally. David's not going to be in it. But at this point, I want to point out a few things as we close tonight. We only have this left. There's a mirror here that I think is kind of cool to see. Like David's raising up the throne or God's raising up the throne of David this King David, and they're really the person who takes this throne is Jesus. So as God is getting rid of the old kingdom of Saul and he's raising up a new kingdom of David, Jesus gets rid of the old priesthood of the, of the Pharisees and, and raises up a new priesthood of the church. So we do see some things that I just want to point out. One, David has been betrayed three times. He's been betrayed by his family, the Ziphites, He's been betrayed by his country, Saul and his advisors. And now he has been betrayed by Achish, the Gentile world. And in the same sense, Matthew 20, verse 18, the son of man will be betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes, his own family, and they will condemn him to death and betray him to the Gentiles, his own people, the, 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 the priesthood, and they will and, and to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and on the third day he'll rise again. There's a little voice of hope there because it's God. But he gets betrayed by one of his disciples, his own people. He gets betrayed by his country, the high priests and the elders. He gets betrayed by the Gentiles, the Romans. Same as David. So there's, there's really cool things with David where we see that. Only David's lost in sin when it happens and God has to intervene and save him. Jesus never falls into sin. The temptation never hits him. David spends time in the wilderness and the temptation does overtake him. Jesus spends time in the wilderness and he kicks butt and takes names. Like, so we get a true Messiah here. We get an image of Messiah with David, but we're supposed to recognize some of these things as believers and how they connect. Uh, both get abandoned by the mob because the mob doesn't want them around anymore. Both of them are turned on by their... Even if they're innocent, David's innocence in this particular situation, his intentions are to fight the Israelites. But even though he's innocent, the Gentiles turn him in. This is humiliating for David, just like it is for Jesus. It's unfair to David, just like it's unfair to Jesus. And they both find that at the end of this, there's going to be some devastation. So when we get to the next chapter, just a hint, David's going to go back to his home in Ziklag, and guess who shows up? The Amalekites. They raid the city kill everybody, and take the women hostage. So as Jesus leaves the Gentiles, he goes to a cross. As David leaves the Gentiles, he goes back to find his home is devastated. And, and the loss is hard. And the Amalekites, of course, are, are, are biblical enemies of Israel. They always show up when Israel's weak. 
Philistines at least fight them when they're at strength. The Amalekites, like, they're, they're just like hyenas. They show up when they, they feel weakness. So when they, they attack women and children when the men are away to fight, that's pretty low down and dirty rotten. So David will find that he has a real enemy, and it's not Israel. And he's going to discover that here. And, and Jesus goes to the cross and fights the real enemy, and it's not the Romans. It's, it's Satan. There's a satanic force or a battle to be fought. So God still has a plan here, same as Jesus. Uh, the thief comes, not, comes not but to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life, that they might have life more abundantly. Same thing with David. The enemy is trying to destroy David. The enemy does destroy Saul. They're both deceived, but God's got a plan that leads to life and leads to a new nation in Israel. So Samuel's about to get a lot cooler in the next couple chapters. But we got all the depressing stuff out of the way this week. Um, and next week we start to see David's righteousness rise back up. His sense of justice shows back up. His courage shows back up. So we get to see God has been putting David through trials, but David's going to come out of those trials stronger than when he went in. And I find that super encouraging. And then we get a David that we can be like cheering for. But not much cheering right now. He's walking away all dejected and humble, and he's not singing songs. So that's where we leave tonight. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word, even when it's tough to hear. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for these examples of uh, men that were once worshiping you that became deceived. Uh, Lord, may we be wiser because we read these chapters, and may we recognize how deception works through a lifetime, not in a moment. May we recognize that deception is subtle. Uh, may we recognize that deception sometimes sounds like truth, and, and it comes from people that are claiming they're talking to the worlds of spirits. Lord, may we recognize those things because we want to honor you and we want to lift up the name of Jesus to everybody who will listen, even the people who don't want to listen. Um, Lord, we just want to lift you up and praise your name and honor you in every way we can in our life. Uh, Lord, help, help nobody in this room to backslide. Nobody listening to this um, recording to backslide. Lord, Lord, help us to immediately when we recognize that we're not in line with you to repent. Like, what are we fighting for? Pride, pride is cheap. It has no calories. We should swallow it. So, Lord, help us to just turn. Help us to immediately, Lord, just repent and put ourselves before you. May we not worship anything but you. We don't bow down to anything but you. Give us courage. Give us strength. Give us a vision for your hope and your plan because it's good. It's not bad. Lord, when voices of despair arise in our hearts, Lord, fight those and combat them because sometimes we can't. Sometimes we're so lost. It looks so bleak. There's no way out. Lord, show us the light. Show us your plan. Show us the life that's there. Lord, even when we don't have joy in our heart, help us to faithfully come to be with your people so we can at least be around people that do have joy. Lord, we live in a, in a world that's full of Philistines. Um, and Lord, we don't want to be deceived. We don't want to be taken in. Uh, we want you to protect us and guard us. So we thank you for these stories. We thank you for the way in which they instruct us, but move us. Lord, I pray a blessing on everybody in this room because that's your will. Lord, may people come and may you just honor them for their passion for your word and for their lives. And Lord, may they just, may everyone be pointed to you. And may we go into our mission field as we leave here tonight um, and know that you are with us at every step and in every moment. In Jesus' name.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.